trying to let this happen. Like, exactly. I'm trying to de-escalate. I hate you. It already escalated. She's about to go out and hit I swear to God, I hate you. A 20-year-old Winston-Salem State student is facing a misdemeanor of disorderly conduct. The students I spoke to say they are concerned with the way the situation was handled. Now, two Winston-Salem State University sophomores say they were in class Wednesday to present group presentations. Then they say a classmate, Layla Hamoud, and the professor got into an argument. She's like, did you see what I said about your paper? Layla's like, I did. Did you see what I said? And Layla basically told her, like, she didn't agree with what she said. She did not have time to rewrite the paper. That's when students say things got heated between the two. The teacher started yelling at her, telling her how it's her class. Layla did get loud back. Another faculty member heard the conflict and called campus police. The officer came in to speak with the two. Students say the professor insisted the police officer pull Hamoud out of class. The cop and professor then went to the hallway to talk and came back with a second officer. He is listening to them, you know, converse or whatever the teacher is at this point going back and forth with Layla again. Students say the fighting continued with both wanting apologies. At this point the officer starts to arrest her and the viral video picks it was just a verbal argument that got out of hand baby y'all better get comfortable with saying black black versus the board of education that's why we are indeed a whole mood. That's it. It's Monday, Jada. What you think about a Monday show? What you what you got going? We do these shows every Monday, so it's oh. just another Monday. <laughs> Until All next mood, week. baby. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Black versus the Board of Education. My name is Miss Laureen, and as usual, I welcome you into this space because we got a whole lot to talk about. Um, we're waiting for our guest to pop on, and should he pop on, we're talking about deconstructing the real impact of suspension. But before we get to him... Um, we are going to kind of dissect what it is we just saw because that was something that happened at the end of the week last week. or mm -hmm. and, and I was just beside myself, but what else is new? Uh, but before we get to talking, let me go ahead and kick it to y'all. Go ahead and pull Melissa up. We'll start with her today. Hey, Wait Melissa. Wait a minute. Who are you? Hi, everyone. My name is Melissa. I am a junior in Southern California, and I'm really excited about today's episode. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Miss Jada. Hey, y'all. My name is Jada. I am a homeschooled senior in the Sacramento area, and I look forward to talking about today for sure. For sure. Jalen. Uh, my name is Jalen. I am a college student, and finals are done. Oh, yes. <laughs> finals are done. I don't know. I see a whole bunch of look of relief on all y'all's faces. We made it. <laughs> we made it. What was the hardest one? Oh, uh information systems oh oh that sounds that sounds that absolutely sounds difficult yeah <laughs> data what about you what was your hardest final um i guess the hardest final would have to be the essay that i had to write in 24 hours without knowing what the prompt was or what evidence i was going to pull from so Bruh. i literally was just like here you go <laughs> I, I i winged it yeah, uh -huh. Melissa, you what's the what was the hardest one my economics class Ooh, Ooh, I love econ. I you love, love econ. econ. That's love right. It. You're a numbers guy. Yes, sir. Yeah, no. Yes, no. Sir. No, Jada? That's not you? All right. Well, uh, we have a couple of announcements to get on out the way. So we are starting our student media program. If you want to sit in the chairs like these young folks do, uh, we will be starting January 21st, 2023, uh, live and in person. So check in with that. Um, also... Yo, this is our last show of 2022. <laughs> bittersweet. It's bittersweet. bittersweet. Why? Yeah. Don't we need a break? We do need a break. I'm honestly, I'm just glad 2022 is about to be over and we're about to step up to a new year. I got some New Year's resolutions going on. You know? Oh yeah? What uh -oh. like what? Tell me, tell me a, a couple of them you got going. Uh, well, okay. definitely going to college because that's when I, I go to college in that's, 2023. That's far, but that's there because huh? there's nothing that's close. That's Wait. your resolution? Yeah. Well, yes. Ain't you in college? 
no, not technically. I'm at home. I'm dual enrolled, but like it's not the same. <laughs> it's not the same. It's not Bruh. the same. <laughs> so um, your your resolution is to go to college, right? Uh, yes. Then uh, change up my look a bit. Um, I've kept the same look for like 17 plus years. You know, I've dyed my hair. 17 plus. Oh, yeah, I've dyed my Lord. hair a few times. I guess. Make it, it's time up to switch it up. <laughs> Millie, tell me I'm lying. It's time to switch it up. Jada, it's time to switch it up. Seventeen years you had. Yep, it's time to switch it up. You had new hair seven. colors. All new right, hair. next time. Okay, so in the new year, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna bring some baby pictures no, you're of not. Jada. No, you're not. No, you're just not. so everybody knows, Jada's cap. No, you're cap. not. No, you're not. <laughs> Jada, you got you got a new year's resolution? Nah, because you know, I just I just want to implement the stuff that I've been like just continue the stuff that I've implemented like a couple months ago. Okay. So I don't really have anything I wanted to change because I feel like if you want to. You don't have to wait till a new year to start. Come on, Jalen. You know, come on. It's a bad. It's <laughs> a bad sound right there. Is that terrible? Sound, <laughs> terrible Melissa, you got you got a, a New Year's resolution? No, not really. I don't really do New Year's resolutions. Um, sometimes I like look back on uh -huh. the year and think about things that I want that I didn't like, um, and try and change those. So I guess that would count as a resolution. Yeah. I haven't really reflected yet. Um, mm -hmm. but I don't know. Nothing yet. Okay. Well, cause I'm like, I mean, I could give give one, but then when I don't do it, I don't want nobody talking about me. Oh, so I'm, I'm not gonna make you. one. I'm, talk about <laughs> you. I'm not gonna make one at all. Just know I'm gonna keep working because that is what it is. Um, and we a whole mood, and a whole mood is what we'll continue to be. And so as whole I, mood, baby. Thank you, Tevin. <laughs> uh, so as I was driving in today, um, you know, I, it's it's Christmas time, right? Mm -hmm. And Christmas. I love Christmas carols for whatever reason. Right, um, and so. No, not no. that one. Um, <laughs> all I want for Christmas is to get some uninterrupted sleep. Um, but other than that, uh, do you guys have a favorite Christmas song? A Christmas song? Oh, yes. Like a song or a carol? Carol song. What? It's the a same song. thing. Uh, what's that? What's that? What's that? Uh, 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 this Christmas. But Chris Brown version. I'm sorry. This Christmas. Okay. Chris Brown version. Because that movie is iconic. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that movie is iconic. <laughs> I have to go with that, that one. Might be okay. top, that, might be, that might be the one. But Feliz Navidad. I don't no. know why. <laughs> no. no, I don't know don't. why. But at least Navidad no. goes crazy. It goes crazy. It goes <laughs> Melissa, crazy. <laughs> um, mine was this Christmas with Donny Hathaway. That's no, my girl. That's I, it my just girl. don't. Maybe it's no. I mean, because you just you just say you think Chris Brown is cute. Just say that. Okay, but I don't know what. Oh, wait a minute. Is. But that's, what, that's no, no. After I watched the movie and I heard his version, I said. I like that right there. They're right there. Yeah. Y'all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my favorite actually is Grown Up Christmas List. Oh, what's yeah. that? Oh, I like that. It's, it's just so dope. And Joe yeah. has a, an oh, a, Joe. amazing version of it. And so my Grown Up Christmas List. That's my favorite one. Um, yeah. So y'all saw the opening video. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, the reason why I get agitated with these videos is you would assume or I'm sorry maybe not you but I would assume that after a certain like a certain um, time that people would be able to give their opinions without fearing having to interact with law enforcement in the classroom mm -hmm. and so as I saw this video and I don't know I don't remember who sent it to me um I started to think about, you know, we talk about the school to prison pipeline and we thought it was just a K through 12 phenomenon. Right. Mm -hmm. yep. And then you see this video and you realize that it doesn't stop. So when did you first see the video? I seen it the day that it came out. Actually, Elijah was the one who sent it to me. Oh, yep. Elijah sent it to me. He DM'd it to me and I seen it. And then after that, somebody else DM'd it. To me. So I had like three different people DM it to me or posted on their story that I seen it. And it was like, I'm just like, why? Just because you give an opinion, I feel like the best classes are the ones that you can give an opinion in. Well, I thought that's what we've been teaching y'all in K through twelve. That's it. To be able to give your opinion. So yeah. Um, what were what were your like? I you probably saw the video of her just being mm -hmm. arrested, right? Mm -hmm. So what stuck out to you about the video? What stuck out to me is that the teacher is all the way in the front of the classroom saying, I want to, I'm trying to de-escalate the situation. Mm. She's nowhere near the situation <laughs> saying, I'm trying to de-escalate the situation. And I want to put a pause on that. Just pause that. Mm -hmm. um, 
I, I see our special guest is here, and I want to give uh, Dr. Bell a chance to introduce himself before we carry on with the conversation, because I also want to get his opinion on what we saw that happened at WSSU, which is Winston-Salem State, State University. University. State University. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so if we can pull up Dr. Bell, uh, Tevin, and can we, hey there, uh, can we go ahead and, and p- kick it to you and you can introduce yourself for us and then we'll get right back into the discussion. Sounds great. My name is Dr. Charles Bell. I'm a criminal justice sciences professor at Illinois State. And I specialize in racial inequality, school policing, law enforcement, and school punishment. Oh, so we got the right one on the right day. <laughs> yes, Listen do. to. <laughs> so um, you were saying in terms of what you saw in that video, something mm-hmm. that stuck out to you. Tell me what stuck out. So the teacher is in the front of the classroom. The altercation is happening in the back of the classroom, but yet she is in the she is yelling from across the room. I'm trying to de-escalate the situation. She is nowhere close to the situation. Mm-hmm. She is the reason why the situation got out of hand in the first place, but oh. saying that she's trying to de-escalate it. Mm. Melissa. Talk to me. What did you see? Something that stood out was what the voiceover was saying, that there was a professor. That there was a professor and a student that got into an argument. And my fr- the first thing that came to my mind was a power imbalance. That's not an argument between an adult and a student. Like, that's a power mm-hmm. imbalance. That's not an argument. That's an adult abusing their power. That was the thing that stood out to me. Jada. I guess the one thing that stood out to me the most was how she was addressing the class, but not the student who was getting arrested. I saw that the student was talking to her, telling her, I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. And I knew that that came from a really deep place. Like people can Mm -hmm. just say stuff like, you know, I hate you, but that came from a deep place. That was some deep hatred. And I feel like she has every right to feel that way. You know, you're supposed to be my teacher. I would hope that you have the best intentions for me. And I'm in your classroom. You're at the front while I'm in the back getting arrested and you have the audacity to address everybody but me. Mm. Like that was, yeah, that's something that I noticed in the video. Um, Did any of you notice how the students around her were reacting? Yes, I saw, uh, I think I saw a girl on this side. She was like holding her head. She was on the phone like, like, I don't know who she was calling. It might have been a parent or a relative or somebody that she trusted because she seemed like really like like oh my gosh like urgent like Mm -hmm. she locally looked like she was about to pass out like she felt like she was about to just kick some type of panic attacks happening right there Mm -hmm. Jalen did you notice anything about the students yeah the first thing I heard was is anybody recording Mm -hmm. because you when it comes to situations like this now it's not being it wouldn't have been believed by the mass if it wasn't on camera Okay. Because a lot of people just be like, hey, well, you know, let's just give the teacher the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it really wasn't like that. Maybe mm-hmm. it was just a misunderstanding. And we we have to wait until the whole story comes out. That's what they okay. always like to say. We always need to wait till the whole story comes out. Now we see the whole story. Now everybody has a diff- has a true, like a different opinion as if the mm-hmm. video never came out. Melissa, anything stuck out to you about the students in the in the room? Also, the recording, someone asking, like, is anybody recording? And that makes me really sad because, like Jalen was saying, like, someone has to record in order for the story to be believable because then victims will be blamed. Um, And that's what we see all the time. That's the reason we have this podcast to talk about those things. Um, So that was one of the things that also stood out. Um, Dr. Bell, did you have a chance to really look um, at this video, uh, the story that came out of WSSU, and what were your initial thoughts um, about it? Certainly. I mean, it's on every social media website. It's everywhere. And it should be. And I think that it's a good example of what Black students at all levels of education go through. And it doesn't matter if it's at the higher education level or the K-12 through level. Uh, as students, we walk into a classroom and I've been a student before, obviously. You walk into a classroom and you expect your teacher to help you. You expect Mm -hmm. the education environment to be a place of social uplift. I'm here to learn. I'm here to gain knowledge so that I can go out into the world and do great things. And my teacher is the one that's criminalizing me. My teacher Mm -hmm. is the one that's calling the police on me, sending me to prison or to jail and harming me. How do you ever trust a teacher after that? And I think that one of the critical questions we have to ask is uh, how do you trust the education system? Number one, why Mm -hmm. should you trust the education system? Number two, and 
you know, where do I go to advance in this society if I can't go to school? Mm-hmm. So I think that um, teachers, what I've talked to teachers about at all levels is it may not have been just one incident with you per se, but this is how students develop an all-encompassing distrust of the education system. Yeah. I don't trust this system because it's the system that criminalized me. It's the system that called the police on me. And then the the we look at like the education system as a state institution and policing as another state institution. Mm-hmm. It's the entire sort of government apparatus against me, a, a, a child, a student who wants to learn. That's I can't win. Man. Well, I, I mean, and, and there were two things uh, that I wanted to say about that. The first thing I wanted to um, actually put out there is what I noticed about that video. You had a young person at the front of the classroom with their mouth covered, right? You had another person sitting the front row um, right by the teacher, and this person had their hands over their ears. I thought about the amount of trauma that the students were going through watching another student be degraded and humiliated in front of the whole class based on not wanting to complete or redo a paper, right? Um, And then Dr. Bell, you just talked about students wanting to feel safe. And a lot of black students go to HBCUs Mm. thinking they're going to feel safe. And this is actually one of the schools that my daughter was uh, accepted to. Um, And I heard you say at home, you're like, what did you tell me? I was like, nah, I, I don't I don't want to go there no more. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> you got that. This is your school. This is how y'all represent your school. I'm supposed to come to your school and want to go to your school and feel safe as a black student. And this is what you do to black students. I'm good. Y'all got that. Thank you. No, thank you. Yeah, I'll keep my money. Thanks. So did it surprise you, Melissa, that this happened on an HBCU campus? Um, yes and no. Yes, because like like you said, like we we as students, I'm a junior. I'm looking at colleges like HBCUs are my top schools because I want because the times that I have been I'm homeschooled now, but the times that I have been in public school, I did not feel safe. And so I was hoping that being able to go to HBCU and apply and get accepted and be on these campuses would give me some sort of safety, which is why they are becoming more popular among black students um, who are applying and going to college hoping to get that sort of safety and community. But also I'm not surprised because like you said, said the school to prison pipeline doesn't stop once we graduate high school. It is still the education system and the education system is extremely flawed. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the thing that actually pissed me off the most, Dr. Bell, if I can be 100% honest, was the statement that was released by the school. Mm. And they said something to the effect of, um, we know that the misuse of police or they use some some terminology. Y'all heard it in the video, right? We know that this normally happens, but this is not what happened in this particular case. Yeah, like they case. don't normally, you see how they normally weaponize the police, but yeah, this wasn't happening. That's what it is. Like, yeah, and this is that's not what happened in this case. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking at uh, the baby who was arrested and I'm trying to figure out who at that administrative level went to check on her. Mm-hmm. before they gave out this statement, because I sure did write them. Um, I was not happy with that statement, and I thought that they should be embarrassed even releasing it. Um, because, again, we send our children to HBCUs, especially, I, I can't talk about m- many other states, but I know here in California, we don't have HBCUs here in this state. Mm-hmm. We send our babies away so that they can take advantage and they can be exposed to a different type of climate um, think because we know how hostile the K through 12 education system has been to them. And to see that happen to that child in class because of an opinion or the going back and forth. First of all, they were treating her like she was someone under 18, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, they mm-hmm. were treating her as, as if she were supposed to just acquiesce and not have an opinion. My thing is, if she didn't want to redo the paper, grade the paper and keep it pushing. That's right. What they, that's what that's all what teachers usually do. They do. Like I don't what do the it. what what was that whole thing about? Like just grade it and keep it pushing. Why the when she comes in the classroom? Why are you immediately going after her, asking her, did she redo it? If you didn't get another submission, it would think I would think she didn't redo it, right? right? 
So the, the fact that she used her, her position um, and her authority in that situation to weaponize her fragility and the police, they should know better than to release that type of statement. Dr. Bell, what do you think? Now, I think that this goes a lot and in tune with the need to control Black bodies. Mm. You know, when we think about the afterlife of slavery that a lot of researchers talk about, the need to control Blackness, and what do people see when they see Black students? Do they see scholars and academics and, and people who can go out in the world and do great things, or do they see former slaves? Mm. Do they see people that, hey, my ancestors used to own you, and own your people, and we can treat you in this horrific way, no matter where we are. Again, like you said, HBCUs are supposed to be a safe space, and it's yeah. no longer safe because people have made it unsafe. It's intentional, and I think mm -hmm. that we have to understand the intentionality behind the system. Uh, when a student in higher education setting, a paper, this is a very simple situation. If the student doesn't want to redo the paper, you don't force that up on them. You pull them to the side, you talk to them, you help them, you nurture them, and you motivate them. And if they yeah. still don't want to do it, you don't force that up on them. You don't call the police unless you look at that student and you, and you see something different. You don't see a student. You don't see someone who's here to learn and do great things. You see a criminal. You see someone mm -hmm. who deserves to be in prison. And mm -hmm. I think that person should not be in a position of teaching number one. But what we have to realize as Black people as, as throughout this country is that the education system is dominated by this kind of thinking. This is not some sort of abnormal, atypical thinking. Um, when you look at education, it is 80, 95 percent white teachers. Mm. And this is a conversation that we have to deal with across the nation. Um, it's not all white people. It's not all white teachers. But there is a dominant sort of thinking here that Black children are not capable. Black children are aggressive and violent. And you see it all the way through the K through 12 and at the higher education level. And I'm even seeing it uh, where, where I'm teaching. You know, mm. it, it is everywhere. It is pervasive. Mm -hmm. And what do you do about this? Yeah. And I would, while I was watching the video, I was, you know, I was going through the comments and one comment that really stood out for me was like, this is why black teachers need to be teaching at HBCUs. It has just been this constant thing of why do white people like to invade a space that should be specifically and uh, meant and for me, black let me, people? Well, that was Dr. Via Gomez. I can't say that she was particularly white, but let's keep it a buck. Anti-blackness spans throughout other cultures, right? Mm -hmm. Other races, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just about white folks. Mm -hmm. It's about the anti-blackness period. Mm -hmm. And so when you have, and I was actually talking to uh, one of our um, producers on the show and, and he actually went to an HBCU and something that I didn't know, you know, he was saying that a lot of the teachers on HBCU campuses are um, immigrant teachers, mm -hmm. which I did not know that. I assumed at HBCUs, they were black teachers. Same here. <laughs> like, I, I mean, but I've never gone to an HBCU. I don't know if I would, I've ever... I don't know if I've ever visited one to be a hundred percent honest. Um, but my thinking when people used to talk to BCUs was mm. that it was a black environment with black teachers who want the best for black students mm -hmm. um, to know that that is not the case where the majority, or I don't even know if it's the majority of teachers are immigrant teachers, but why is it that we don't have us yeah. in the position to teach us. Yeah. You know, that's a question that I have. And and I don't know um, much about HBCUs, but I did find that fascinating mm -hmm. um, because I know a couple of our students um, who were accepted into HBCUs and went to HBCUs. Um, one of them, especially one um, that came, that went to Hampton, told me that they were disappointed because they didn't have any black teachers. And I'm like, how, how can that be at an HBCU? You mm -hmm. don't have any black teachers? Right. Like that's, that's so bizarre to me. Does, is that bizarre to anybody? No, Am I yes, you don't have black Melissa, teachers. Melissa, why your mouth open? Black <laughs> Melissa, because, like, what? Because that's like, because I have never visited an HBCU. Like, I was also. We don't go. I was, <laughs> Honestly, we, I was also in the same mindset, Miss Lurie, that like, you're at a historically black 
college right. university why are you not why why is this why are you in a position that you have no black teachers I don't understand. That makes him, no maybe sense. we should start writing college. And Hampton and was actually a really good college, and I was like actually considering. But hearing that, it was like I didn't know that they had no black teachers at a historically. Well, no, and and I'm not saying that that they don't have them on little the campus. to none. I'm saying the classes that this particular student was enrolled in, she had no black teachers teaching her, and that's just weird to me. Like I, that, that's insane to me. That's weird. And I'm a California girl. I don't know. I already got I mean, that here. No, yeah. I have that here. It's, it's trying to explain something weird. new. <laughs> so I mean, I'm I'm learning as I go, and, and I'm I'm telling you all this because we need to start looking into these colleges that y'all are applying to, um, and seeing what type of experience you can probably um count on mm. once you go. Yeah. Um, I'm not comfortable with that. Mm. I, I'm just not. That's just weird because it's like. Like you, uh -oh. like it's just like. Look at y'all like, in the comments. He said, "I attended HBCU," and yes, correct. Many of the professors at HBCUs are not from here. How did how did how did that happen? That's like what in the world is going on at like, our what's HBCUs? The, like, what's the, like I guess, I guess, I guess my mind on HBCUs is just different. I guess just basically growing up on like the sitcoms I used to watch, like a different world. I guess. um what, uh, they fed it? us a dream, didn't they? they? Did. <laughs> black teachers, black students. I was like, look at all this variety of yeah, black you just right think here. It's be black I think staff Hampton. No, black what was it? Um, uh, Hillman. Gosh. Hillman was based yeah. off of but Hampton. Hillman. Okay, no, they it was based yes. off. I'm like, Hillman you know that was. <laughs> yes, I know it was like not a real college. <laughs> Hillman was actually based off of Hampton, so I was like, oh, we got we got black on black here. Okay, cool. I'm like, oh, little to none. Okay, so my mind is just a little. It's a little confuzzled. We'll say that. Confuzzled. It's, it's confuzzled. Confused <laughs> and puzzled. A, you got confused it. <laughs> and puzzled. It's confuzzled right now. And and I brought this story up and I, I wanted to start off with this, uh, Dr. Bell, because I know you you wrote a fantastic book. It's called um Suspended. Uh right here. This is actually one of the books or actually our current book club selection. Um, and we're gonna get him to zoom in on this on this book real quick. Suspended, suspended. And you've been doing your work around um the disproportionate discipline of black students. And so, you know, we've had this conversation because he was so gracious to answer all my questions because I had a lot. <laughs> um, we had this conversation before and I wanted to bring you in with our young people because I think that they need to understand better what we're talking about. A lot of times when you're um, like, I won't say you're, when I'm going in front of the school boards and I'm talking to them about the detrimental effects of suspension and asking them, to really look at the numbers and figure out why it keeps happening that black students are being pushed out and to constantly be met with the deer in the headlights reaction, it's really getting on my nerves. So can you talk to us about your book and, and why you decided to study um, this subject matter? Certainly. And again, I appreciate the invitation to come and talk to about this information. It's very important and just want to get this information out to the masses. Very happy to be here. Um, so what started me on this, in this area of research is as a young child, just really understanding and really trying to understand. I'm graduating high school, I get to college and I'm from Detroit. I went to Wayne State University, a predominantly black city. And the further I went into Wayne State, the less students of color and black students that I saw. And it just became a situation where I, sophomore year, I'm looking around and I see no black students. I'm just wondering, how can this be in the middle of Detroit? There's no black students in my class. I'm the only one. So I started looking at barriers to higher education. What are some of the sort of traps or problems that students and my peers are encountering before they get here? And I stumbled upon the school to prison pipeline, this term, and it's just like a light bulb went off in my head. I could literally see the pipeline and how it was operating in my community. Students were getting suspended when I was in school. I've been suspended before. And you, you get suspended, you miss three or four days. You come back to school, you don't know what's going on. You get suspended again because you're off task. And then eventually you just, you're, all, you're so far behind. And it's just like, what's the point of coming back? You drop out, you end up in prison. And that's just one type of pipeline to prison. There are several. So I really just wanted to understand how did this situation, how did the school to prison pipeline impact black families? 
There's a lot of numbers, lots of statistics, but nobody had really came to the community and asked the, the people who are most impacted by this problem, how did a suspension impact your life? How did it impact your parents? How did it impact their employment? So I was just really asking the tough questions in my own community where I came from. And I, I learned a lot. And it is absolutely devastating to see how a one suspension can be so harmful. But the students that I interviewed, they had between 10 and 30 suspensions by the time they reached ninth grade. And it's just a vicious cycle. Um, and you see this play out across the country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. All I hear James say, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> And so when we're talking about suspensions and, you know, for some um, teachers who are habitual line steppers, um, they tend to send kids out for, I don't know, having a hat on when they come into the classroom um, or, you know, they don't like a student's attitude or, um, you know, there's a myriad, a, a variety of reasons why black students are sent out and most of them are subjective. And in your book, you talk about one student in particular who did not have the uniform shirt and how he was kind of pinpointed and and suspended. Can you talk to us about that and and what his uh, view was on that? Certainly. And I know exactly who you're talking about. You're talking about Donovan. Donovan. Um, And his situation was absolutely tragic for a number of reasons. So Donovan's situation, he's in school. He's recently um, suspended from another school because of dress code issues. And he's waiting to get his sort of transcripts and his parents, it really, it literally just lost their jobs. So his mom had bought uniform shirts. Um, he's an athlete. So he grew out of them really quickly. And she just couldn't afford to buy any more uniform shirts. Um, and, and that's just a tough situation, if you, even for a parent to admit that they're struggling financially. She's yeah. sending him to school and whatever clothes he has to learn. And the school is saying, you're in the wrong color shirt, go home. And he's crying in the interview. I want you to picture this. This is a 17 year old young man. He is catching the bus in the snow to get to school because he knows that in Detroit, you usually you have the automotive industry, you've had Chrysler, Ford and General Motors, and you just don't have that anymore. It's not a reliable source of income for a lot of young people. So they know that I have to get a high school diploma and likely a college degree, or it's going to be very difficult for me to survive in this society. So they're out here, they're going to school, they're showing up, and they're being sent back home for very, very petty reasons. So mm-hmm. this principal actually suspended Donovan for 30 days because he was out of dress code. 30 days. 30 days. Mm-hmm. And he's in the interview and he's just crying. And he's in a really difficult neighborhood. I actually lived in this community and I talked about my experiences living in this community. Um, And I know many people, if if you think about Detroit, you know, in the national media, Detroit went bankrupt. And I want you just to imagine what that looks like when a city goes bankrupt and the residents are still there. That means that when you call 911 in Detroit at the time of the bankruptcy, you get a busy signal. Nobody's coming. <laughs> Many people in America just can't imagine that. Right. The street lights that are usually on, they're off. It's pitch black. It's just darkness everywhere. So it's just, you know, crime is elevating. There's no jobs. At the time of Detroit's bankruptcy, General Motors had, you know, declared bank declared bankruptcy. Chrysler went bankrupt. So it's just a domino effect in the community. And it was a really difficult time in Detroit. So I and I, to, oh, go ahead. No, no. And I, I just wanted to go back because you were talking about the really difficult time Detroit was having. But also in your book, you really talked about how politics was used to pretty much decimate the education system um, in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And you talked about how um, the there was something that the the voters voted on a, a some sort of bond money bond okay so they voted on this bond and i guess the only caveat was that they wanted to use a black contracting firm and because the governor did not agree with that and he wanted his own people in there um Mm -hmm. they decided to basically uh, politically sabotage this area so can you talk to us about how 
the bankruptcy and then the um, bond was used to politically decimate this the educational system in Detroit. Certainly. And these are two separate issues that are converging. So you have right. the city of Detroit that went bankrupt uh, and you had the Detroit public schools that was sort of a politically orchestrated bankruptcy where politicians attacked the district because of the bond money. So this is exactly what happened in Detroit. And I put this in there because there's a lot of misconception in the media as to what happened in Detroit public schools. This is a story that only exists in my book and amongst the seniors in the community who are fighting this battle. And this is our own sort of civil rights issue in Detroit. So in 1994, Detroiters got together, they're looking at their schools and they realized that, hey, our, our schools are not, not only are they sort of decaying and they need some repairs, but the internet is emerging as a very important resource. We need to have access and we need it now. We need computers. We need all this kind of technological innovation. So they approve a $1.5 billion bond to invest in all the public schools in the Detroit area to create a state-of-the-art district. And it's important that you understand that this district, of course, it's in Detroit. It's educating predominantly Black children. So, of course, they want to hire Black contractors to repair the schools and invest this money in Black businesses. The governor says, uh, no, we have our own you know, contractual group that we want you to consult with. And the district says no. So you have this democratically elected black school district in Detroit, who is against the Republican elected. And this is Governor John Engler. At the time, I'm pretty sure you may, you may have heard of John Engler. He was the interim president at the you know, at Michigan State University, most recently in, in a scandal. <laughs> um, so Governor Engler is frustrated by this. And he sends Senator Dandy Grow. They pass and write Senate Bill 297 to attack Detroit public schools and steal this bond money. And what they did was so elaborate, um, frightening. Uh, and you got to take your hats off at how they attacked the district and made sure that the fallout was never targeted at any other district. So this is what they did, and this is how they attacked the district. They said that the government could take over a first-class school district in Michigan. And they defined a first-class school district first as a district that had over 100,000 students. Only Detroit public schools had 100,000 students or more, and no other district came <laughs> close. No other district. The, other, the second largest district in Michigan was Grand Rapids. They had like 20,000 students. So it was specifically targeting Detroit public schools. And then they said that we can take over a district if there's a financial or an academic emergency. We know there's no financial emergency because the district had $93 million in reserves. And it was published in the newspaper, front page, $93 million in reserves. And uh, test scores were about middling. So Detroit Public Schools is sort of on the on the rise in a sense. They are climbing out of this deficit academically. There's no reason for you to target this district. And if you, for some reason, felt that there was an academic emergency, I just told you that test scores are in the middle. So that means that you should really be concerned about those districts that are below Detroit Public Schools if you're concerned about academic achievement. But no. So they just completely violated this sort of law, and then they attacked the district. They fired all the board members of the district, and they appointed their own board members. So the board members that they appointed were not educators. They had no education experiences. These are CEOs, and they just completely mismanaged the bond money. They built high schools at $150 million each. And when the high schools opened, the climate control system didn't work. The football field is uneven. The school couldn't play on it. I don't think they can play on it until this very day. Um, the roof was leaking. $150 million high school, it, it shouldn't be opening with problems. And then the <laughs> fifth building, is, which is in Detroit, the owner paid $21 million for the whole building. Detroit Public Schools rented five floors for $22 million or something <laughs> like that. So why would you rent the building for more money than or five floors of the building for more money than the owner and just pay for the whole building. So they just made sure that they took over the district, they fired all the board members, they appointed their own board members, and they made sure that they spent all the bond money within the five-year period in which they could control the district. So they gave the, the district back to the residents in 2005, and the district was essentially bankrupt. They had a $210 million deficit and a 50% interest rate. 
So the $210 million in 2005 ballooned to $369 million in 2008. And of course, this bill says that they can take over a school district if there's a financial emergency. Now there is a legitimate emergency because the government in Michigan created the emergency to take over the school district. <laughs> now it gets worse. It gets oh. Much- oh, it gets worse. Oh boy. Oh, that sounds pretty bad already. <laughs> Melissa. <laughs> that, that, that. It, it is something, it's a horror story. It is a horror story. And it's something that um, I had to write this because I couldn't believe it until I actually started doing the research. But mm-hmm. it gets worse. So this is what's worse. So $1.5 billion plus interest. And then of course they did this again. The emergency manager took over the district, who was appointed by the governor. They took over the district. They took out another bond in which taxpayers have to pay this money back mm-hmm. and reinvested this money in the schools. And these schools are closed. This is the important point. Now, Detroit had 160 schools we've lost. You know, 160 schools. Whoa. They're just gone. These buildings are just still there and all kinds of hor- horrible things are happening in these buildings. These buildings are still there. And Detroiters are paying for these buildings right now. And they're That's vacant? Before. They're vacant. They're, they're this- completely vacant. They're just crime magnets in the city. And this is what's mm-hmm. really the, the tragedy of this. So this happened in 1994, the first bond, $1.5 billion, and then $500 million in 2009. Detroiters are paying the maximum amount of taxes to the school district. And the school district right now can't afford to do any repairs because all that money goes to debt. Now, this, they're expected to pay off the debt in 2051. So this one bill not only devastated the generation of 1994, which is when I was in school, you know, all throughout my entire education, children in Detroit public schools in the 2000s and 2010s, 2020s, 2030s, 2040s, these children are sitting in school, they don't have books, they don't have pens, they don't have resources, they have no, they don't have the supplies, they have chemistry labs, they don't have water. How do you do a chemistry? How do you do chemistry assignment with no chemicals? You can't. Bunsen burners that are—they don't have the resources. They're not doing papers in class. So how can you be competitive? You can't. So mm. these children' lives have been stolen from them. Wow, and that's the tragedy. Jalen, <laughs> that J- is—it's something you would never hear in the no, news. I- Honestly, wow. They, yeah, no, you make a good point. You wouldn't hear that. You wouldn't. Anything. It's for the facade. It's to put up the facade that, oh, educational system, I got it all under control. Mm -hmm. Everything's under control. And and what really irks me is that if you heard anything in the media, Mm -hmm. what they will tell you is that Detroit is a democratically controlled city. It's a black city. Black people did this. Mm -hmm. Black people destroyed the school district. They're in the city. They're the dominant ones. They control the city council. This is much bigger than the city council. This is much bigger than the mayor right. of Detroit. This is a politically orchestrated attack. Now, this is typical. What I found is that Detroit is a, and I've been really thinking about this, and I'll kind of introduce this term that I've been really thinking about mm-hmm. uh, for a while, political plantations. Ooh. I've been really thinking about this. And you have these urban cities like Detroit that are that masquerade as progressive. But when you really think about it, in, in Michigan, we have 110 state representatives. Detroit sends 10 representatives to the state house. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem in Detroit is that not only can we not pass any legislation in Detroit because it's always 10 against, you know, the other 100 or 75, however that divides out, because all the Republicans are always against Detroit. And then some of the Democrats always betray Detroit. So Detroit can never pass any progressive legislation. But the problem is Detroit can't defend itself from attacks because we only have 10 representatives. Mm -hmm. So you have a black city that's black dominated population wise, but who really controls Detroit? It's not black people. Now, when you think about a plantation, it's predominantly black populated, but who controls it? Not the people there. 
Mm. So what is the difference politically between a historical slave plantation and one in which, you know, it's dominated by whites at the top or political individuals at the top who can come in at any point, just like slave patrols, take what they want, do what they want, and you can't defend yourself. It's a political plantation. Mm. Melissa. And Flint is the, you know, you can talk about oh, yeah. many urban oh, cities. Oh, oh, no. That's a whole other can of worms right there. Mm. Another political plantation, a city that doesn't have the, it's set up in a system yeah. of slavery, political slavery, mm. in which you can't defend yourself. You can't control your own destiny. You are, you can only do what they allow you to do. You know, they poison the water in Flint. And nobody was punished for it. It was a political sacrifice. And I think that right there, you know, I think it's super important to understand politics. But sometimes knowing that politics are this messy, it kind of strays me away from it. And it's sad to say, but unfortunately, that's just how I view it. You know, I'd always view it as like there's always this blurred lens. There's always this facade going on. And I can't trust politics and I don't want to get wrapped up in it. And, you know, it's just very negative. And to hear this, this is deep. Political <laughs> plantation. I said, ooh, man, I just needed to snap for you because I was like, ooh, ooh, no. <laughs> it's a system where we can't afford not to be involved. Come on, talk to them. Been telling them that for years. That that's the issue. You know, it's a system where if you're not if you're not in the room, if you're not at the table, you you automatically lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you on the menu. And the thing is, we can say we can say we don't do politics. Politics does us with no Vaseline all the time. Oh my gosh! (laughs) No, but we got. I mean, let's 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 keep it up. It does. It does. So if we're not in there, we're not advocating for the things that we need or that we see our community needs. Mm -hmm. Then they just continue to get passed over, or they use your numbers to get the funding for your group, Mm -hmm. and then they disseminate it to everybody else. Yeah. Shout out Mm -hmm. to that uh, stupid therapist that I was on the phone with from Elk Grove Unified School District trying to argue with me about how they're going to use black kids' numbers to serve all kids, and I'm not having it. Mm -hmm. Melissa, I keep trying to throw it to you. Um, (laughs) What you got to say? That whole story stressed me out. Um, (laughs) Oh, yeah, I was like, is it worse? It gets worse. (laughs) And then he said, it gets worse. How does it get worse? And then it got worse. The math (laughs) is not mathing at all. Um, $150 million, and then we can't even use the school. And then the debt, it was so stressful. And so, like Jada said, it's so deep. And it's like, this is the stuff that no no one's ever going to talk about. Yeah. And people will keep complaining and keep throwing the blame, but it's not like we have to talk about the root of the problem and and that's what everyone is missing. Certainly. It was it's that's really deep. It's a lot. Jalen. So I have a question about the story. So is it a thing where the people in Detroit know what what actually happened to the school systems, or are they un they are they unaware about what's going on too? Because like, I'm asking because is it like a, basically like a dome around um, Detroit? Like basically everybody in Detroit knows what's going on, but the whole other world doesn't, or is it they are they don't know what's going on? Just like we don't know what's going on, but the only people that know what's going on are the political people. That's a great question. So what you have in Detroit is, of course, division, as anywhere mm-hmm. else. There is a mm-hmm. sort of um, upper class who was actually involved in fighting this. They took this to court. They they sued. And the courts ruled against Detroit. This is, it gets worse, of course. So the, the courts said that this law, Senate Bill 297, they allowed it to be legal, and they didn't take it off the books because a school district in Michigan could arguably grow, arguably go to grow to uh, hundred thousand students. So at some point, Grand Rapids, which had twenty some thousand students, might be hundred thousand students, which is not the point. If the point is that you're attacking a district and you're taking the money away, so you had this sort of group of people who were involved, seniors at this point, who were fighting this issue. And in my opinion, what they did, they fought the issue. And they protested and they did not recruit the youth to get involved and protest with them. So you have generations like my generation, I'm 37, and the generation under me that are are in school 
they have no idea what happened in Detroit. They're just in school and they're looking around and they see that the floor is warped, the, the ceiling's leaking, there's rodents in the class, mm. there's no books. And they're just wondering like, uh, I can't learn here or I don't want to be here. This isn't comfortable. So you have a lot of kids that are gravitating to, towards the streets. I have to, I have to survive. I have to um, take care of myself. I want to be a doctor, but I can't do it here. Mm. There's no books. Mm. Or would you have a situation where you, you, you go into a class and you open the book and, you know, Bush Sr. might be the president in the book. This book is 20, 30 years old. Um, what am I going to learn from this book? All right. So yeah. close the book, leave the room. You know, it's pointless at this point. So I, I've actually talked to students and they told me, and, and get this one. I, I've talked to high school seniors and they told me that they were in a classroom watching Frozen, the movie Frozen for hours because there's no teachers. Wow. <laughs> There's literally frozen. No, no yeah, like teachers, in, especially in public school systems, they'll be like that. I remember I had transferred from my old math class to a new math class, um, and my old classmates were like, "Yeah, we walked inside the class. Teacher, teacher was like, I don't want to do anything today. You guys want to watch a movie? I'm like, I'm over here doing some algebra. What you talking about watching a movie? Like, I'm trying to pass this class, and I'm I don't know. Like, you know, some relaxation time is good, I guess. But like, where does the learning come into play? We do all this relaxation in these classrooms, is what it seems, and there just doesn't seem to be this hardcore teaching or this need to want to educate students the right way. Well, I, I think, is it just students or do you think, is it all students or do you think it's specifically black students not wanting to educate black students? What do you mean? It can be a mix of both. A mix of both? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, because, you know, I, I want to get back to the suspension. So you set the stage about Detroit. You talked about the dilapidation of, of the neighborhood and how they it deteriorated under these people who were probably not from the, the area, but came in to run it. Um, and so I'm wondering, because of the way that the the politics shaped Detroit, did you see an explosion in the suspensions and the num- the types of teachers they may have brought in or what what was the catalyst or what do you think is the catalyst for for the discipline numbers um, that you saw come out of uh, the Detroit public system? You know, and that's a great question. I think that when we think about the school to prison pipeline traditionally, I think that we imagine a pipeline like I kind of did where a student gets suspended, they leave school because they're behind and then they drop out and they're incarcerated. And what I found is that there's just multiple issues that are converging at, at the same time. So one issue is uh, you had a emergency manager that's in place. And the emergency manager, of course, is this individual who's appointed by the state government, state governor. And what the, what the emergency manager told a bunch of us is that we have two choices. We can fail these students expensively or we can fail them cheaply. Mm-hmm. Oh. Think about that. <laughs> oh, so that comment in itself says that we don't see these children in Detroit as people who are going on to college and do great things and, and, and be amazing people. We see them going to prison, so let's just facilitate this process. Let's let's take away the books, take away we, we don't want to invest in them. Take this money and send it to the suburbs. So it's that kind of thinking that mm-hmm. they don't think students are aware of it. But when you have teachers, and I've heard this from students, and I've heard teachers tell me this when I was in school, so I know it's true. I've heard teachers tell me that all the boys are going to prison, so we're going to focus on the girls. And what does that do to a a Black boy's psyche when you hear that kind of language? My teacher said I'm going to prison, so why would I even come to school? But if I'm not in school, where am I? Yeah, Mm -hmm. That's one of the problems. Another problem is when we talk about school suspensions, there's a lot of myths here that I'm challenging and suspended. When we talk about school suspensions, we assume that every child who receives a suspension actually did something wrong. That is, <laughs> that is not true. It is the perceptions and the beliefs that you know a lot of teachers have about black girls and boys as angry, loud, violent individuals. They lead educators to misinterpret a lot of the things that black students do label them as deviant and get them out of the room. And you have the book, Sandra's case is a perfect example of black girls. She's in the classroom. One of her friends is arguing with two other girls. 
she tells her friend, calm down, because if you argue with one of them, the other girls are going to jump in. Her principal says, that's a threat. You're suspended for five days. Sandra didn't threaten this girl. They get in the hearing. Sandra says, I didn't threaten this girl. The girls that who Sandra had supposedly threatened says, she didn't threaten me. Principal says, I don't want to hear it. You're gone. Suspended. Mm -hmm. And we have to really think about that. Why did, why did this principal push Sandra out, make her miss five days of learning? Because it, it couldn't be because she was actually violent because the girl said, you didn't threaten me. It's because when they look at you, when these officials look at black children, they see violent. They see former, you know, descendant of a slave. They see prisoner and, and criminal. They don't see scholar. And mm. they use that justification to get you out of the room. You know, it, same with Donovan. Why would you suspend a child for 30 days when he is coming to school to learn? And he has on clothes. And what's really interesting about this is now that I've left, you know, I'm in Illinois at this point, and I've talked to students in the Chicago area, and they've told me that when you come to school in Chicago, we have a bin. If you come out of, out of dress code, we have a bin of shirts. Mm -hmm. You just right. get a shirt. Everything out here. That doesn't, yep. really, that doesn't exist in Detroit. They just want you to go straight to prison. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's just stunning to me uh, how they create these systems. There was actually a situation where they were going to build a state-of-the-art jail right in the middle of the projects in Detroit as they were closing these schools. So they called it a state-of-the-art jail. And I want you to picture this. This jail had a juvenile facility, an adult facility, and a, and a detention center all in one. And they uh, pitched it as a state-of-the-art facility uh, half a billion dollars was going into this. So more money was going into the jail than the schools. That is absolutely insane. Um, and, and my first thought when I was reading about Donovan's story, why didn't the freaking principal just give him a damn shirt? Right. Like, I don't, I don't understand the need to push a student out or to be punitive with them because they don't have. Like, at some point, where was the adult attention on these babies to say, you know what? Let me get him a shirt. Why 30 days? 30 days, I would, first of all, I don't even know nothing about 30 days because kids here get suspended for five days. And at the five-day mark, if they're going to extend that, they have to hold a meeting. So how is it in Detroit that they can suspend a student for 30 days? 30 days. Another great question. Another myth that I'm challenging. When we see students get suspended, we assume that the suspension is legal. They are not always legal. And this is what I've learned. Mm. So these schools, and of course, there are several laws that are in place. Gossie Lopez, 1975 court decision mandates that if you suspend a child and the suspension is longer than 10 days, you have to have a hearing before mm. the suspension is issued. 100%. Yep. You can't suspend a person and punish them before they actually have a chance to defend themselves. It's the same thing as going to prison before you have a trial. Mm. It's not legal. But what the school is basically saying is that, yeah, you have rights, but can you afford to access and affirm those rights? Which means, can you afford to sue us? Come can on. you afford to hire an attorney, go to court, and, and do the necessary legal ramifications? Can you do that? And if you can't, then those rights are essentially useless. Yep. They use their disadvantage to their advantage. Yep. Exactly. And that's and happening was, nationwide. That's not... I mean, this uh, this case out of Detroit is super egregious, but this is happening nationwide. Um, Elk Grove Unified Schools District is number one in the state where we live. It's number one in the state for disproportionate discipline of black children. And I did see um, a comment in the chat that asked, what is the state superintendent of instruction? Uh, it, what is the, his role in holding school districts accountable to eliminating disproportionate discipline rates? And what I'm hearing you say, Dr. Bell, is we got to start suing people. True. Is that is that the only recourse um, you know, that students and their families have? You know, th there's a few things here because you, you would think that suing people would make a difference. And I think that um, in some cases, I've talked to parents and knowledge of the law has deterred some suspensions. I've seen some schools that say, hey, your child's going to get suspended for five days. The parents said, well, we have this new law in place. 
that says, you know, you're supposed to consider restorative justice practices and the school completely reverses course. Mm -hmm. Right. Now as a parent, you might have some money. You might be able to sue us. Uh, we don't want to suspend your kid, but, you know, we'll take Johnny down the street, though. But <laughs> right. I've seen parents have, and this is what I'm dealing with in my current study on seclusion and restraint. I have parents in my current study that have spent $200,000 on lawsuits and they're losing because they're in affluent school districts. And if you have money, the school says we got money too. your yeah. tax dollars. Yeah. They're going to use your tax dollars against you. Uh -huh. So they hire their own legal team and they just delay, delay. And while you have to pay your attorney, their attorney is on retainer and they just, you know, process the motions and they're using your tax dollars and your whole neighborhood's tax dollars against you. And you just never win. Wow. So what we need is some political intervention here. And this is mm -hmm. why I just said we cannot afford not to be involved in politics. You know, we have this uh, mentality where, uh, politics, our duty is to elect, you know, senator, president, and then we, we're done. And that's only the beginning. We need to be in these rooms. We need to be writing policy and pitching into legislators and saying, if you don't pass this, we, you're not getting our vote. And we need to be coming, you know, 500, 10, a thousand strong. Bring your neighborhood because nine times out of 10, whatever problems you're dealing with in your household is affecting the whole community, especially. Mm -hmm school suspensions. This is a national crisis. Uh, wow. So we have to develop a community, make some demands. And if you can't find a, a representative that's going to fight for you, maybe you need to be that person that runs for office. You know, I've been telling young people, maybe it's you. You run because we need some, you know, leadership here. And some some young leadership that isn't afraid to do what's right and is not going to be compromised um, by the political will of people with money. Um, because that's what we see. We see special interest groups who have the ability um, to come in with funds um, and they got funds to throw around. It's like a party mm -hmm. of funds. And, you, you know, we just throw them to everybody. But this is how we expect you to vote if we're throwing you some money. Um, at some point, we're going to have to get really, really serious about the changes we want to see and the people that we're going to hold accountable to start to put those things in place. Like I told y'all before, um, it was cool that we did the, the candidate forum and we had all the folks that were running to come through. Now they've been elected. Come and hold them accountable. Mm -hmm. Time to put some stuff on the table and then hold them accountable to do the things that we're asking them to do. Because like Dr. Bell said, it's a national crisis at this point. And my thing is, we can't fix a problem unless we're really, really willing to identify it. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's what we've been kind of advocating for at the school at the school board level, because all politics is local. Right. That's what we've been advocating for at the school board level was for them to actually identify the problem so that then we can put a solution in place. But with the, the lack of political leadership or the lack of holding um, inept superintendents uh, accountable um, and getting them out the way to implement some changes. I mean, I just fear that we're going to continue to see more of the same mm -hmm. and, and we can't, <laughs> we, we can't, we can't survive more of this. Our children can't survive more of this to the parents that are listening. Our children are not equipped to fight this fight. The adults are going to have to come through and, and start, and then pass it down to them, but teach them the ropes so that they're aware and they know the system enough to combat it. So Dr. Bell, we, I'm upset because we don't run out of time, um, but I do wanna invite the community to come out. We will be resuming the book club in January. Um, we haven't gotten too far in the book because we, we've been sidetracked by conversations like this. Um, but we're not in a rush to finish it. So we invite you to join us and we invite Dr. Bell to join us again during the book club so that we can start to process this information. We, we invite the teachers, um, any educators that are willing to come to the table and say, hey, there is a problem when we want to be part of the solution. We invite you to that conversation too, because until th there, there used to be a saying, if you know better, you do better, but now you know it. So what are we about to do? Mm -hmm. How, how are we about to do this? And so, um, y'all, I hate that we ran out of time, but, you Man. know, it's time to go. 
Man. Jalen, Jalen, this is the quietest that y'all have been and in a while. Crazy, it was what's so crazy is I feel that Mr. Bell only covered probably a third of this stuff. Let's let's put some respect on his name. That's Dr. Bell. Dr. Bell. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, my he bad. earned that. My bad, doctor. Oh my Tevin, God. don't do that again. <laughs> he said he pointed out the certificates in the wall. <laughs> yes, Dr. Bell. Dr. Bell, I feel like you've only covered a third of it. I feel like we barely scratched the surface. I feel like a lot of this stuff goes really, really deep. And so how about this? How about in the new year, we bring Dr. Bell back and we continue the conversation? Absolutely. What All do right. y'all think? Is that okay, Dr. Bell? Can we invite you back? We'd love to. Looking awesome. forward to Dr. it. Dr. Bell. So, yeah, so much. All right. So, so we will invite him back in the new year. Um, and you know what? We just going to hit y'all with the way we we out of here because I'm stressed really? out, Melissa. Yeah, you got to start it. It was a lot. Melissa, I'm stressed. <laughs> like, it was a lot. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> And well, oh, we want to thank everybody who contributed in the chat. Uh, we will go through, and if there are questions in there, um, Dr. Bell, if you want to go to either BYOP's page or my page and you see the questions, if you want to respond directly, that'd be cool. Um, <laughs> awesome. Uh, so we're going to hit you with the wave. Melissa, go ahead and start us off. Hey, hey, hey. What's up, still here? Whole move, Ooh. baby. Come on, Jalen. Uh. Come on. Uh, See, they done went to the gym and they looking all stiff. You feel but me? I got it. You feel me? Hold up. It was, <laughs> you feeling it was, buff? It was chest and back day today. Oh, brother. My hip out place. Lord. <laughs> we can't do nothing right. Anyway, we out of here. Check y'all out next <laughs> next year. Take yes. care, everybody. Happy New Year. Feliz Navidad. <laughs>